Amen. You may be seated. You can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 14. And again, you know, we've, I've been summarizing a little bit each week, but these reformations that we're seeing in this last chapter of Nehemiah 13, we're taking them individually, but they are reflecting upon themes that we've seen already in Nehemiah. I think there's importance, obviously, to themes that are repeated in Scripture. And so we want to take the time to repeat those themes ourselves. But we look at them from different angles, and as the text itself does. Um, but it was after building the, the wall in Jerusalem and, and then overseeing what can only be described as a revival among the people, Nehemiah returns to King Artaxerxes. And he's spent 12 years as their governor, and then he goes back. Uh, to the king and it doesn't say specifically that he entered back into um, you know as their as the cupbearer but it does seem that he's returned to the king to serve uh, a, a in a secular nation um, after doing uh, this great work in Jerusalem while away the people quickly lost their ability to maintain the work uh, chaos enters in and corruption and compromise some failed to separate from foreigners as we looked at in the beginning of chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 and we're not just talking about separation from you know um, people that they were acquainted with but this is this is in, talking about a pluralistic kind of worship right and of being into in partnerships with those who are worshiping false gods um, and so they had to separate themselves from that they had already done this or they had said that they did that did it earlier but it's clear that some had gone against their own vows that are recorded in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. And they, they were still joined with them in an improper way. Now, Eliashib, this is what we looked at last week, was Eliashib the high priest makes, made room in a large temple chamber for Tobiah. He, he eliminated all of the, these offerings that were stored in that uh, chamber eliminated all of the in the temple furniture or things that were, were stored there to make room for Tobiah, who we already know was one of Nehemiah's greatest enemies. He was an enemy of the people of God. And so clearly when the, the high priest is compromised at that level, you've got a problem among the leadership of the church and the leadership of the, of the community that, um, in Jerusalem there. The civil authorities, as well as the religious authorities, have become compromised. And so this minimized the, the, the idea that they were removing things from the chamber, which included very clearly in, uh, in the previous passage, offerings. Right? You have in verse, um, look at Nehemiah 13, verse 5. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil. So we already saw Nehemiah restores that, but what we'll see today is that when, that had, when those had been removed, it does appear that the tithes themselves uh, had stopped. They had ceased to collect them. Um, and so we'll explain that in a minute. But the religious, or while we can look at this swift and a religious moral decline among the people, it discourages us, but I think it's very clear that as we consider the example of Nehemiah here, we should be inspired 
His employment in Susa never distracted him from persevering in the work that originally burdened him at the beginning of Nehemiah. He maintained a passion for the glory of God and for the reformation that the people experienced while he was there under that first governorship. And as he returns, he recommits them to that same reformation. In his book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells defines worldliness as whatever makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. I think that's a great definition of worldliness. Whatever makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. You might have some enlightened Christians who would read this chapter and interpret Nehemiah's actions as strange, as out of place, inconsistent with Christian character. But he's too uptight about form and order. He's too legalistic about obedience to God's law. He angrily tossed Tobiah's furniture out of the temple, as we saw last week. We'll see in the future that he curses and beats and even pulls out the hair of some of the men who married foreign women. That's going to take some explanation, but we'll, we'll wait till we get there. But of course, I mean, Taylor Swift would certainly urge him to calm down at this point. He's being too loud. He's being too aggressive with his religion. We're far too easily influenced by a world that encourages us to forget our faith in God and to relax our commitment to his service. And it's very clear from this passage that Nehemiah did neither, right? That he does all of this for God and for his service. That's his prayer at the conclusion of this section. And so rather than calming down and pretending that we have so much in common with the world, we might want to ensure that we haven't become an enemy of God by making friends with the world, as James 4.4 makes clear. Reformation follows a common pattern that requires courage, loyalty, and a tireless zeal for God. Those are accurate descriptions, accurate descriptions of the characteristics of Nehemiah displayed in this chapter. And so may God light such a spark among us this morning. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to just settle our hearts before you, um, to be open to this text. Lord, we, we want you to open your word to us and then to open our hearts to your word that it might be as it were deep calling out to deep your spirit speaking to our to our spirit causing us to be transformed as we listen or that our minds might be renewed that we might recommit ourselves to the vows that we've taken in this community. And we pray that as we sit under your word that you would open our eyes, give us eyes to see the truth, give us hearts that are softened to respond in obedience, whether that be through repentance, conviction of our sin, and, or, or through a strengthening of our faith, trusting in Christ. Lord, may we understand your word rightly and respond appropriately. 
For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read it with me. Nehemiah 13, verses 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the, the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Amen. This is God's holy word. We're going to look at just three aspects or um, components of reformation in this passage. Obviously, the, the central idea or the theme is, is this idea of giving, right? They're, they're tithes that had been, apparently, they had ceased to give over this time. But I want to use it as, a, as sort of a, a map for what genuine reformation looks like, regardless of the, the subject or topic that is being addressed. So the first thing I, we want to see is confrontation, verses 10 and 11. Reformation begins with confrontation. This reform follows closely with the previous verses, right? He removed Tobias' furniture from the chamber. He, he threw it out of the temple. And then he had the entire area, even the surrounding chambers, right? It goes from singular chamber to plural. So it seems like the whole area ends up being cleansed at that point. And then restores the vessels and the offerings to the chamber. And it seems likely that he had learned of the neglect as he was going through this, you know, this previous reform of, of removing Tobiah. He learns of the neglect to collect the grain and the wine and the oil. And so while restoring the, the grain to the large chamber, he, he realizes that this collection is no longer being taken. And that the people, in fact, the Levites and singers have, have gone back to their fields. Now, whatever the source of his information, however he discovered it, Nehemiah doesn't waste any time to correct the problem. He immediately confronts the officials and he directly questions how they could have allowed the temple to be neglected. Something that they had explicitly committed to in chapter 1039. They said, we will not neglect the temple. And now what does he see? The temple is being neglected. Giving is not taking place. The Levites, in fact, are forced to return to their fields. Now, we know from uh, chapter 12, look at chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. So this is, this is where the singers are residing. 
uh, among other Levites, right? So they're coming in from, outer, from those outer villages to do the work at the temple or to collect the tithes. But now that the, the tithes are not being collected, they've had to return to their fields. What it's saying is that they're, they're no longer able to be sustained by the offerings. They have to go back and sustain themselves, sustain their families. And so the neglect of the officials has now compromised the Levites' work and caused them to then, it, it's jeopardized them being able to take care of their own families. And Nehemiah confronts the officials who were already in Jerusalem. We know that they were living there already. And then he gathers the Levites and the singers. He tells them to, to, to join, and, and he places them in their stations. So this was their lawful service, and he puts them back where they should be. And the officials should have been ensuring that they could perform their duties. But now, of course, with the authority of Nehemiah behind them, they can begin to resume the collection. And again, the, the neglect of these officials had jeopardized the Levites' livelihood. Rather than relying upon the officials, Nehemiah just takes it upon his own hands. I'm going to gather them together. I'm going to put them in their stations. You guys can sit down and watch. This is how you obey. <laughs> this is how you do it. So it begins with confrontation. Tim Ferriss says, Your success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. I think he's on to something. I have a, my friend Josh Long has written a, a business book called Bottleneck Breakthrough. If you're a businessman, I encourage you to, to check it out. But each section deals with various challenges that businesses face as they grow. And he has an entire chapter, chapter nine, devoted to the idea of confrontation. And he says this, every great leader and entrepreneur I've ever studied accepts that confrontation is to be expected. And every person I've ever seen who fails to step up to their fullest potential hides from it. It's that simple. See, great leaders are, are willing to confront others in order to remove the distractions and the dysfunction from key relationships within every company. Confrontation is not merely a problem for businesses. And not every business book has principles that we should adopt in the church. But this is clearly something that takes place anywhere community exists, including the church, right? It's, it's necessary to engage in confrontation. And so the first step I want to encourage us in is to develop the courage to confront. We must develop the courage to confront. Confrontation is not easy, but you can develop the courage to have difficult conversations. This is especially needed among the officers of the church the elders. The apostles were not afraid of confrontation whenever the gospel was under attack. You can look at their response to the Judaizers in Acts 15. Uh, you can see Paul confronting even his fellow apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2. So we ought to, to praise God when, when we have leaders who are willing to confront even one another where there is compromise or where someone is neglecting to perform their uh, responsibility. You can be in prayer for our denomination in this regard because we many see a reluctance to confront the sin that is taking place in our own denomination. We need to discern the difference between a bold leader 
who will stand firm against opposition and a quarrelsome leader, which is a disqualification for office in 1 Timothy 3. 3 right? Or, or a, a leader with a quick temper in Titus 1.7. So uh, those qualifications for office is that you're not quarrelsome, you don't have a quick temper, and yet you need to be capable of confronting someone where it needs to be done, what you need to be willing to say what needs to be said. So we need leaders who, who won't evade confrontation, but neither will they stir it up needlessly. A quarrelsome person creates controversy as soon as the dust settles. They're just contentious by nature. They crave it. A godly leader is willing to confront whenever it's necessary. So the goal is not to prove your superiority or to exert your authority, but to remove any dysfunction from the body of Christ, any distraction from the glory of God. And so whenever leadership avoids conflict, division follows. It's interesting, right? The unity that you're trying to preserve by avoiding the confrontation and the conflict becomes the very thing that is lost when we fail to act. Right? Nehemiah's leadership then foreshadows our Savior, whose greatest confrontations were with the hypocritical religious leaders of his day. And he was not shy in confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He didn't hold back as he challenged them or when they challenged him. Those who place their faith in Christ then do not receive a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Notice the, the balance there. A spirit of power and love and self-control. It's power, but it's under control. 2 Timothy 1.7. So confrontation always opens the way then for restoration. If you want unity, if you want restoration, it, you, you got to start with confrontation. But that's the next thing we see in verses 12 and 13 is the restoration that takes place. So he has his confrontation with the officers. He establishes the, um, he gathers in the Levites and the singers, sets them in their stations. And then verse 12, all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And then he goes on to appoint these treasurers. So the tithes of grain, wine, and oil are now restored. The, the offering that's taking place, it's restored. The people don't appear at all reluctant. It's not like they, he had to go and drum them back up to, to come and give. He didn't have to go around to you know, send, send messengers everywhere and say, hey, come back, we, we need you to start giving. It's like the people were not the problem. The problem was the leadership. And so Nehemiah remembers, or he um, remedies the situation, and then he appoints four reliable men as treasurers. Notice that that's the sole qualification. That doesn't mean this was the only thing that he, they, they were looking for, but the sole qualification described here is that they were reliable. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Why was Nehemiah concerned to appoint reliable men? Apparently, the great failure of the leadership was an inconsistency or even a laziness to do their work. And so, Nehemiah appointed faithful, 
trustworthy brothers who would take their work seriously. Those are synonyms for reliable, trustworthy, faithful. Apparently, the the priest, the scribe, the Levite, and this assistant now provide additional accountability to the officials. We don't know if the officials were removed and replaced. It doesn't doesn't explain that. But whatever Nehemiah is doing here is he's establishing further accountability for what needs to take place. So these four treasurers ensured that the Levites and the singers did their job properly. They ensure that the collection is not being distorted, right? That there's no corruption involved there. They're keeping track of this. And their work also was, uh, was required to, to make sure that the, the Levites and singers were free from any intrusion or interference from the other civil authorities or even religious authorities if Eliashib was still involved. In the New Testament, you see religious authority as well. Right? You see, the, the New Testament recognizes specifically two offices, the elder and deacon. Um, overseer and elder are used interchangeably in Acts 20. So some have, have even acknowledged a third office of bishop. Uh, I would say that that's not consistent with Paul's teaching. Rather than recognizing a third office, he gives qualifications for two, elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He's very explicit there. And then he uses language of bishop or overseer interchangeably with elder. So I would say that's the same office. However, he does make a distinction between elders who teach and those who rule, right? Those who teach and rule, and then those who rule. So you have ruling elders in the PCA, and then you have teaching elders. Teaching elders have the same authority as ruling elders. They all have one vote on the session, but teaching elders have the regular responsibility of teaching, of preaching. And therefore, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17, they are worthy of double honor. They're worthy of the honor of an officer in the church as a ruling elder, equal with their brothers, but they're also worthy of being compensated financially for the work. It's to become their their full-time vocation. They're not to have worldly cares so that they can devote themselves to the work of the church. And so what's my point? Under the Old Covenant, it's clear an entire tribe of Levites were devoted to the maintenance of temple worship. Similarly, it takes reliable leaders to maintain a new covenant community. You have it in your local church, you have it even at the, at the regional levels in, in Presbyterian churches. You have a presbytery and then you have a general assembly which is overseeing the entire nation. We're all connected. We like to call it you know, a con- connectionalism. There's a connection between our church and really churches around the globe, around the world and across the nation. So there's still officers that are needed, and there's servants that are needed within the church. There's those who are paid, and then there are also servants who are volunteers. So we still need men and women who are willing to serve the church in various capacities. While officers must be men who meet the qualifications described there in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, any member can serve on various committees right, that, that keep this place functioning, clean, 
safe. Uh, the most pressing need, I would say, among volunteers is reliability. Acts 6, 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 21. You have this similar kinds of requirements or expectations among leaders there. That they be trustworthy, faithful. We need folks who are consistently willing to serve. And I would encourage you, there's a, on your bulletin, you have a list of the officers on the back page. Uh, talk to one of us if you're interested in serving. We aren't looking for volunteers who are especially talented with a toilet brush. We don't only want people who know how to mop and set up chairs with exceptional skill. But we don't expect the people who serve to do so because they absolutely love whatever task has been assigned to them. You, you, you can't say, well, I don't have the gift of cleaning bathrooms. That's just not my thing. We appoint teams and committees because we want to arrive on Sunday morning without having to walk past knee-high grass into a filthy building. Because what happens when you do such things? You think about the knee-high grass. You think about the filth instead of what you've really come to do. And we want everyone to be able to enter those doors and not think about the building at all. That is not a distraction. Um, we want our hearts to be turned toward God in reverent worship, as we read in Hebrews, with reverence and awe. We want our eyes, I mean, when our eyes are distracted, when we notice all of the little things that we want to change, our hearts are certainly disengaged as well. And so Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. And then he points to the fact that he gave his life as a ransom for many. When we serve others, we are following after the example of Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet. And he says, go and do likewise. And Jesus took care of the physical needs of his followers, loving and serving them in order that they might follow him, his example. And so ultimately, it is the power of the cross that enables us to be forgiven. And out of gratitude for what Christ has accomplished for us, we then devote ourselves to serve him and the body of Christ. That the proclamation of the gospel might not be hindered in any way. And so confrontation is followed by restoration and then joined by supplication. We conclude with this verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. I don't think I've ever prayed anything like this before. It sounds presumptuous. It sounds self-promoting. How do we reconcile the sacrificial service that Jesus exemplifies and then calls us to echo that we just talked about with Nehemiah's prayer here to be remembered? 
Was he concerned about his rewards in heaven? Was he expecting recognition? We understand praying to God to bless someone else, praying that God would bless someone else, but to request a personal blessing feels, feels a bit off to us. Does this prayer reveal Nehemiah's pride and his selfish ambition? You know, we, we can admit that it's not as audacious as the request of James and John in Matthew 20, right, who requested to be seated at the right hand of Christ when he enters glory. But it does seem to have something of that flavor. If that's your instinct, as I've admitted that it was mine, you're probably not reading it accurately. And Nehemiah prayed something similar already after describing his own generosity in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 19. He'll reference a very similar prayer in verse 22 and 31 of this chapter. So there's four different prayers where he says, remember me. One, he acknowledges the one he's serving. He acknowledges that the work that he's doing is for an audience of one. It's for God. He did this for the house of God and his service. He's writing this down in his memoir, not not proclaiming it through the world. He's not saying, establish a statue in my honor for all that I've done. People, recognize me. No, he's talking to God. He's praying to his father, his heavenly father. He seeks the favor and recognition of God, not man. That's not a bad thing. Nehemiah did these good deeds for the temple, not for the accolades of men. And so sometimes we appear more interested in critiquing the prayers of others than praying ourselves. We're quick to detect things that we think we would say differently. That's not how I would pray. Or I, you know what, I can't pray with them because they don't, they don't say things the way I would. But in reality, we end up saying almost nothing to God. If we did pray, and if we prayed in ways exemplified in Scripture, if we followed the example that we have, then we would not be ashamed to bring our personal goals or our ambitions and desires to God. He may change our heart in the process, but he won't turn us away when we come to him with a childlike faith. Children, do you talk to your parents? Do you go to them with exciting stories of your accomplishments and success? Do you share that with them excitedly? Do you seek their affirmation? Of course you do. It's natural. It's good to hear well done from your parents. And I know I should be a lot quicker and freer to give affirmation. But God is not reluctant as we might be. God is not troubled by the requests of his children. He isn't bothered by their appeals for his attention. He doesn't, he's not at all reluctant to supply the affirmation that we seek. In fact, if you simply read scripture, you come across it all over the place. It's constantly affirming his love for his chosen people. 
Scripture is full of his encouragement to you. So let us strive to pray like this with integrity and honesty. I'm not saying lie. I do it all for myself, but I'll, when I'm praying to God, I'll, I'll act as if I do it for him. And we want to have integrity and honesty when we pray, but that means that we'll have good deeds to bring up. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated here, good deeds, typically refers to God's covenant love, loyalty, and faithfulness. It's hesed. You've probably heard that term before, referencing God's covenant faithfulness. In other words, Nehemiah was asking God to remember his devotion to the covenant community. Remember me and my covenant faithfulness. And so we should exhibit a similar devotion to the covenant community out of love for God. Derek Kidner says this, if we cavil at his plea to be remembered, he could pronounce us too sophisticated and the gospels would support him. It springs from love, not self-love, as his tireless zeal for God has testified to hear God's well done is the most innocent and most cleansing of ambitions. So confrontation, restoration, and supplication are aspects of reformation. The issue of the tithe is the, the focus of this particular reform that we've read, but, but typically reformation follows a common pattern. That requires courage, loyalty, and a tireless zeal for God. And apart from the work of Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit, we will never manage more than a short-lived commitment, just as this community. As soon as Nehemiah was gone, it seems within years, within a few short years, they were back to their original status. And not giving, neglecting the temple compromising their worship. But when our weary hearts are strengthened by the gospel, strengthened by a recognition of what Christ has done for us, we will strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. And so let us, let us ask God for his help in renewing our covenant with him. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this reminder, Lord, of just how much we, we depend upon you, Lord, how much we, we need your spirit. Lord, to reform our desires, to change the way we think about you, the way we express our love for you and our commitment to you in this covenant community. Or maybe there are ways that, that we have neglected that. And we've thought there was Lord, some, some reason, some other, some excuse for our actions. 
Maybe we justified it through our own reasoning. We explained it away. And, and, and we've done it for so long. We've been compromised for so long that we simply don't even think about it. Sometimes your, your word is like Nehemiah returning and confronting us where we've become blind. And it calls us to reformation. It calls us to restore what we've neglected. And help us to renew our love for you and for the bride of Christ, for his church. Not that we would delight in every aspect of how we serve and how we give of our time and our resources, but that we do so so that others might gather and worship you without distraction. May we be motivated ultimately by the centrality of worship. What seems to have motivated Nehemiah. Lord, this, we, we want to be convicted where we've gone astray, but we also want to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, that it is only because of his perfect obedience, because of his sacrificial love, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he died in our place. He took our guilt. He took our inconsistencies, our unfaithfulness upon himself. And he gives us his righteous record that we might be restored to you. And so then it's, it's purely out of gratitude that we serve. It's with thankful hearts that we give. It's, it's not that we might be justified. It's because we are justified. So, Lord, continue to work in us now, even as we respond with our singing and by the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing this Psalm 119D, My Soul is Sinking Down to the Dust, Psalm 119D.